0: The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Open with me to the book of James as we continue our study through the book of James. Uh, Found it interesting that uh, in Uganda they are uh, walking through the book of James together as well, so that's pretty good. Um, As you're turning to James chapter 2 this morning, let me ask you a question. What are the best seats you've ever had? Can you think of a time when you went to a concert or a sporting event or something when you had, those were the best seats you ever had? Now, I've not been to tons of events, but probably the best seats I've ever had. When I was a teenager, I was a huge country music fan. And uh, things have changed a little bit now, but I was a huge country music fan. And I found myself at one point, I was third row for Winona, third row center, Winona on stage. And at one point in the concert, she looked at me. And took her towel and threw her towel to me. And I felt we had a connection, you know. <laughs> anyway, those are probably the best seats I've ever had. It's uh, pretty sad, I know. You've had better seats than that probably. Uh, what are the worst seats you've ever had? You ever had to sit between a couple of very large people on an airplane or something like that where it's just been a pretty tough trip, pretty tough sitting there for a while? Um, in, in venues and in events, sporting events, concerts, it's not hard to see that when you go to buy these tickets, there is a hierarchy of seats, that some seats are better than others, and if you don't believe that, just go to purchase certain tickets. You know that some tickets you purchase, those are great seats, I want those seats, and you go to check out, and you'd have to sell your firstborn, you know, to, to get those seats, So you say, well, let's move back a little bit, and you keep moving back until you can afford, and lots of times that's the nosebleed or that's out in the standing room only, right? that's, That's how we do seats in the world. There's a hierarchy. When you buy tickets for a concert, that's how things go. Tickets for a sporting event, that's how things go. If you fly on an airplane, you know that there are certain people that sit up there, right? And there's a curtain they pull. And we don't know what goes on up there, right? I mean, there's smells that are wonderful coming from up there, and there are smells where you are that are not quite so wonderful, you know. And there's a hierarchy of seats when you fly on a plane, when you take a cruise. I've never been on a cruise. I tend to get seasick, so I've not risked that yet. But when you take a cruise, there are certain levels of cabins that you can purchase. What if we seated people in in the church that way? Now, let me ask you this. What are the best seats in here? Now, obviously, you think where you are is the best seat in the house, right? Because you've picked that seat. But have you ever stopped to think about that? What's the best seat in this place? In most Baptist churches, where's the best seat? Back row. Coveted territory, right? I pastored a church one time, and it was a large sanctuary. It would seat about 750 people, and the church was was not in its heyday, to say the least, and there were about 150 that would show up, and they would all sit toward the back. And it was this long shotgun of a, of a thing, and I would preach, and I would have to peer out through there to see if they were still paying attention, and finally I got to where I would just walk down, and I would just walk back to where they were, right? If Jesus were to come into this place today, where would we seat Him? Where would be the best seat in the house. This is the question I think we're going to face this morning as we look at this passage. These James is dealing with, he's writing to his church members, these Christians that have been scattered because of persecution into various regions around. He he can't pastor them from up close. He's pastoring them and writing them this letter. They're living their faith in places that are hostile to the gospel. But they're a little less hostile than where they had just come from. That's why they've gone there. And James is having to pastor them from there. And one of the issues that they are dealing with in this Roman culture is giving preference, giving favoritism to certain people. And James is going to put forward a question to them, an issue about when a person who comes in with rings of gold on his fingers, dressed very nicely, where do you seat him? a person comes in in shabby clothes, where would you put him? And I think we today, 2014, have to ask ourselves the same question. If you look around this room, and you're going to see this, I just want you to have this thought as we go through. There's not a whole lot of us in here that have to worry about what we're wearing. In fact, many of you, the question today was, which one will I wear, right? It's a real issue in this day. And I want us to look at it today, the issue of showing no partiality. Read with me as we look at James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in... but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? This morning, this passage lays out with three distinct sections. And we're going to look at these. We're going to look verse, first at verse 1, this command that is given. Then we're going to look at verses 2 through 4 and look at this example in the middle And then we're going to finish up with verse 5 through 7 and look at the reasons why or the outcome of what happens when we make distinctions and we judge among ourselves. So first, let's look at the command. The command, obviously, in verse 1 is show no partiality as you hold the faith in, in our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not to show partiality. Literally, this means don't receive the face. It's, it's the, the, the phrase there, receive the face, to receive the face is to look at someone and determine just by looking at them whether you want to draw them close to yourself or whether you want to push them away. It's judging a book by its cover. It's making distinctions based on what someone looks like, where they're from, the color of their skin, or a number of other uh, indicators that you would make a judgment on. I want you to notice, though, that... James here. Remember who this is. James here says as you hold faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Don't forget this is Jesus' brother. James here is calling Jesus God. He's calling his own brother God. You can't miss that. He's calling his own brother God. He uses Lord twice. He says Lord of glory. The word glory there meaning wait, It's a term that's only applied to God. So James here, the very brother of Jesus, is calling his older brother God. And this is important because there are some today that would say, nowhere does the Scripture ever claim that Jesus is God. It's all over the Scriptures. It's everywhere you turn, there is a claim to deity for Jesus. Not only is he calling Jesus his own brother God, but he's calling them, those that would were, were read and, and hear his letter, those brothers and sisters in Christ, he's calling them his brothers and sisters. And, and, and we can transfer that all these years later to us as we hear this letter read aloud as well. If you are a believer, follower of Christ, then he's also calling you a brother or a sister in Christ. James here, I want you to see, the side note there, it'll make sense in a minute, he's calling Jesus his own brother God, he's calling us brothers and sisters, and then James does something pretty interesting. James roots the command in the example of Jesus. He roots the command in the example of Jesus. In other words, what, what God expects of us can be known by looking at Jesus. What he says here is, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He's saying, look, if you want to show no partiality, you look to the one who did it perfectly. And he points to what God expects of us in the person of Jesus. Jesus didn't show partiality, did he? I mean, think about it. His life, his genealogy itself was very diverse. Among his genealogy, there were those that were born in poverty and obscurity. There were those who were the product of incest, former prostitutes. There were liars in his, in his genealogy. Jesus didn't play favorites. He didn't shun people. He didn't have any right to, really, because look at his family tree. Jesus not only was not partial, and we see that, in the fact that he was born, in Jer- not in Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem. You would think that the Son of God would be born in Jerusalem, the city of God. But instead, he's born in this tiny little town, the city of David, which would have had great importance to Jewish people, but to the rest of the world, Bethlehem's nothing. So Jesus has a really shady family tree, is born in a tiny little town. He grows up in Galilee, comes from Nazareth. One, one uh, Nathaniel even said, can anything good come from Nazareth? So he comes from this hick town. As Jesus ministered and lived his life, he didn't just go to those who were wealthy or influential, but instead he continued to go to those who were in poverty, nobodies. It really didn't matter who came to him, he would talk to anyone. One commentator wrote it this way, it made no difference to Jesus whether the one to whom he spoke or ministered was a wealthy Jewish leader or a common beggar, a virtuous woman or a prostitute a high priest or a common worshiper, handsome or ugly, educated or ignorant, religious or irreligious, law-abiding citizen or criminal. It made no difference to Jesus. Jesus didn't discriminate. If you'll think to the people that he came in contact with, the people hated guys like Zacchaeus. But Jesus made a point to go to his house for dinner. Jesus was not a man who showed... Favorites, he didn't didn't show partiality. And here's why I say all that makes sense. The reason I point out to you that James is calling Jesus God, calling us his brothers and sisters, and then showing us the example of Christ. Here's where it all comes together. We're commanded to show no partiality because if we truly, if Jesus is God, we are brothers and sisters adopted into the family of God. And if we if we claim to follow Christ, but then Do what he didn't do, and it makes no sense. To to live in a way that's contrary to the way that Christ lived is inconsistent. And this is James' point. This is what he roots the whole command in. You and I are called to live like Christ. If we take the name of Christ, then partiality has no business in our lives. Favoritism has no place as we gather together. Racism has no place here. If we're going to call ourselves brothers and sisters with James in following Christ, then we must be people that show no partiality. Then secondly, there's the command, show no partiality, but then I want to show you the example. And in this example, I want to show you the evil in our thinking. I want to look at verses 2 through 4. I've already read it. I won't read it again. But he describes this sort of hypothetical situation where two men come into their gathering. One is finely dressed. The other is shabbily dressed. And they are treated very differently. In the first century, there was virtually no middle class. Uh, Landon and I lived in eastern Kentucky. Uh, for a few years right after seminary, and, and where we lived, there, it was kind of like that. There was virtually no middle class. People were either very wealthy, and they'd gotten wealthy off of the coal industry. The, the coal industry, the price of coal had boomed in the 80s, and people there had, had gotten literally rich overnight. Or you could go just out of the city limits, and you could find people living in extreme poverty. And that's really how it was here. In the first century, there was virtually no middle class The wealthy were wealthy largely for one of two reasons. They had either inherited their money or they had stolen from someone else. That's virtually how everyone became wealthy in that first century. And so here, as the people have been scattered because of persecution and they're living in these other places, they're living among very wealthy people and very poor people. Most of the people in the church are are poor. Many of them became poor overnight when they were persecuted. They lost all of their land, all of their possessions, and they had to flee and leave everything behind. And so the temptation would be for them that as they gather together as the church, wherever they are, if, if a wealthy person comes in, the temptation would be to treat that person with some sort of favor because of what it might gain them. Here, when, when the Bible describes this rich man and it, and it says he's wearing a gold ring, particularly in this Roman culture, one of the things they would do is they would, they would wear gold rings to to display just how wealthy they were. And, and they wouldn't just wear one gold ring. Here it says a man come in wearing, one, uh, wearing a gold ring. But often they would cover their hands with gold rings just to show how wealthy they were. Uh, One historian there, he says, uh, We adorn our fingers with rings and we distribute gems over every joint. Can you imagine that? Just on every joint of your hand having a ring and some kind of gem on your hand? You you come walking in, the phrase is literally gold-fingered. You just thought that was, is that James Bond? You just thought that was from that. But lit, here, gold-fingered is what it means. And, and you walk in and, and you walk into a midst of people that are, are, are living in poverty, not knowing where their next meal, many of them, is coming from. And you walk in and you're just covered and dripping in gold. Not only that, but he says, this rich man comes in and he's, he's wearing fine clothing. The, the word fine there means bright or brilliant. It's the word that's often used to describe the clothing of angels. When angels show up throughout the New Testament, they're, they're described as being bright. This is the same word here. This is someone coming in in a day when there was no mass production of clothing. There was no Walmart. There was no mall. Uh, there, there was no men's warehouse. There was no, um, I, don't, I don't know, ladies, where do, where do you, where do, where, there's, no, there's no places to run out and get that, right? So if you've got clothing in this day, fine clothing, clothing that is bright, brilliantly bright. It means that you've got enough, enough money to have this thing custom tailored. And you come walking into this place, gold dripping from your hands, clothing that looks like the clothing of angels. You're going to get noticed. Then on the flip side of that, there's the poor man. The poor man comes in and he's in shabby clothing. And this word shabby, we don't really have any trouble imagining what this is like. It's the same word as that's translated filth back in chapter 1 and 21, the filth that they were supposed to put off. Just picture the average homeless person. We don't have trouble imagining this. You can picture this clothing that is dingy and stained from the world. It's probably the only set of clothes this person has. They come walking into the congregation, and, and maybe you smell them before you see them, this is the picture here. This is the one pair of clothing. I heard one pastor as he preached through this text talk about an experience he had in a, in a part of the world where he was living among a people that only had one set of clothing. And so when it was bath night, the children would run around without any clothes on because their one set of clothes were being washed. you imagine that? We, we live so far from that, don't we? We live so far from that. But I want you to see the extravagance of the picture. This rich man comes in, dripping with gold, fine, bright clothing, and this shabby man comes in and he smells and this is the only pair of clothing that he has. This is the example and this is the evil in our thinking. Both men come into their assembly and both are treated very differently. One man is told, Oh, We're so glad you're here. We've got a seat just for you. Would you come up here and sit in the best place? The other man is ignored and pushed away and told, Go stand over there. Some some in this day, while there were very few benches, some might have been fairly wealthy and might have even had a footstool. They might have had a bench and a footstool where they were. And, And in some of your translations, it may say, Sit under my footstool or sit by my footstool. The picture is this person is not even thought enough of to be given the footstool. That the person won't even take their feet off of their ottoman if you will to let this person sit down. Now, here's where I want to bring this home. James is here giving them this seemingly hypothetical situation, but in reality this probably was happening. My question to you is this, does this still happen in our culture today? Absolutely. Now, we don't maybe see it so often here, but it happens all around us in our culture today. Our culture still makes distinctions. We make distinctions between the rich and the poor. We make distinctions between the educated and, as Uncle Sy si says, the uneducated. We make distinctions there. We make distinctions between the influential and the nobodies. We make distinctions between male and female, between black and white. We make distinctions all the time. Do these distinctions still exist in the church today? Absolutely. John MacArthur uh, appreciates so much his ministry, his life of ministry. In his commentary, he says this, tragically, Many otherwise biblical and faithful churches today do not treat all their members the same. Frequently, those who are of a different ethnic background, race, or financial standing are not fully welcomed into the, into the fellowship. That ought not be. It, is not only, it not only is a transgression of God's divine law, but is a mockery of His divine character. Now, the reason I bring that quote to you is because it, it, just, it just struck me the way he worded that at the first. Many seemingly otherwise biblically faithful churches... See, we can, we, can, we can amen the Scriptures. We can sing the songs. We can put money in the plate. We can do all the things that we know we're supposed to do and still have this sin glaring at us where we are making distinctions among ourselves. And these distinctions should not happen. Here's, here's where I want you to see the evil in our thinking. Why do we make such distinctions? I think there are at least three different reasons why we make these distinctions. Number one is this. We assume that when, when we gather together and there's a group of people that come together, we assume that people like us are right. Don't we? Don't we think that people that, li- that are like us, that look like us, that have the same hobbies as us, have the same skin color as us, have the same socioeconomic standing as us, that, that we're somehow right And sometimes we assume that those on the outside of that that are different are wrong. And we will push those people away. We make these distinctions. I think that's one reason why we think this way. And our thinking is faulty if we think like that. We have to remember that in this world we are not yet where we are going to be. Yes, in Christ we have been forgiven, but we have not been fully made like him. And we are headed to that place. But we've got to remember that we need the gospel every day. I read a quote this morning that said, when we gather together to worship weekly, worship is weekly practice of not being God. And I think that's a good quote. We come together to remind ourselves that we're not there, that we're not the model, that we need others. I think there's a second reason why we think like this, when someone comes in and they're wealthy or they're influential or, or they're, they have this or that, we see an opportunity. And I think that's what was going on here. These that had been displaced, many of them lost all that they had. When a person comes in just dripping with gold, they see an opportunity. So they want to give that person extra special treatment. And third, evil in our thinking, I think, is sometimes we see people who seem to have it all together, who may be wealthy maybe influential, maybe just, they just seem to be prosperous, and we think somehow in our, in our evil, twisted thinking, they must be closer to God. God must love them a little more. And therefore, we want to get close to them to find out what they have. Maybe what they have will rub off on us. And this comes straight out of this prosperity gospel where preachers stand and, and teach that if you follow Jesus and if you give sacrificially, that God will not only meet all your needs, but will give you all you want's. And in some ways where, where we, would, we would put that down and, and, and we would say we don't believe that, sometimes we're tempted to believe it in our thinking. And I think maybe that's what James is speaking against here. Well, what does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about this type of thinking, about making distinctions? Well, in this very chapter, in this very passage where we are, in chapter 2, verse 4, he says... Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? When you and I make distinctions, when we look at a brother or we look at a sister and we determine that they're not quite like us, or I don't need them, we're putting ourselves into a position that belongs only to God. Only God has a right to judge. We have no, we have no position or no authority to look at a, a, a brother or a sister and make a determination about what or who they are. God alone has that power, and we're not qualified to make those kind of judgments anyway because God alone is holy. You and I, we make judgments, but our judgments are based on evil thoughts. They're based on false assumptions that we are right. They're based on selfishness, looking out for our own interests and not theirs. So that's the the evil in our thinking. Now, here's where I want to spend probably the bulk of, of of the time here this morning. I know it's Getting late, but let me just give you the outcome. When we as a church, when we as a church make distinctions, either when we gather together and we play favorites and we show partiality, or when we're out there living our lives and among our coworkers or, or here and there, when we make distinctions and show favoritism and show partiality, here's some outcomes of what happens. Number one, we misrepresent God. We misrepresent God. We, when we make distinctions among ourselves, we look more like the world than we do like God. God himself makes no distinctions. He is not a God of favorites. He shows no partiality. He says this here in our very text in, in verse 5 when he says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world? Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. The great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. God can't be paid off. God is not impressed with our gold rings. God looks at everyone the same. God is not a partial God. Romans chapter 5, verses 7 through 8. Aren't you glad for this? For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You ever thought about that? We look at this and we we like to think that when we read this passage that we're the person sitting in the congregation, we're not the one who jumps up and runs to, to greet the guy with gold rings. Nor are we the one that that tells the shabbily dressed man to to go stand in the corner. We like to think that we're just an innocent bystander. But let me remind you, we're the guy in shabby clothing. We're the guy walking in that no one wants to be around. The Bible says in Romans 5, 8, that when we were still sinners, dressed in the filthiness of our rags of righteousness, God in that moment... Loved us by sending Christ to the cross. God shows no partiality. Philippians, 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 chapter two, verses five through eight says, "Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant." Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 1 Corinthians 1 is a good reminder for us, verses 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards, not many of you were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame what is low to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low in the world and despised even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We look at this and we see the character of God. God shows no partiality. He plays no favorites. Your very life is evidence of that. So what does it say about you claiming to follow Christ when you go out and make distinctions about certain people because of how much they have or what they're like or what color their skin is? When we make distinctions, we misrepresent God. Number two is this. The outcome of us making distinctions is this. We mistreat the poor. James here says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Psalm 41.1 says, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. Proverbs chapter 17 says, Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. You can't help but read the Bible and and see that God has a special place in His heart for the poor. James here says that He's chosen the poor. And does this mean that God has only chosen the poor, that the poor are only those that will be saved? Absolutely not. Liberation theology teaches that, that, that only the poor are the ones who will be saved. But we know that there were those who were wealthy that followed Jesus. We look at just one example, Joseph of Arimathea, who gave his tomb for Jesus to be placed in. A wealthy man following Christ. So it's not just those who are poor, it's God chooses people based on His own choosing. He doesn't look at them and say, I don't quite like your hair. I don't quite like the color of your skin. I don't quite like this. Instead, God bestows His love at His own discretion. God has a place in His heart for the poor. He's always made provision for them and given protection to them. I think God does this, has a special place in His heart for the poor, because He knows that when He saves the poor, only He can get the glory. We, we, we look at a wealthy person and, and it would be easy to explain things away. They could, they could sort of lean on their own abilities and their own things and prop themselves up. We know that all they have comes from him anyway. But when a poor person, a, poor, a person who's faced with desperation every single day, when they find the hope that comes from Jesus Christ, he alone can get the glory There are more poor people in the world than there are rich people. A poor person is in a much better place to see their need of God. All of these play into the fact that God has a special place in his heart for the poor, and you and I are not to mistreat the poor. Daniel Doriani, in his commentary, says this We follow James most truly when we respect all the poor. Those who are poor in personality, the dull and the complaining. Those who are poor in mind, the slow and the uneducated. Those who are poor in body, the wrinkled, the bald, and the overweight. I kind of like that one. In short, we should honor poor students who bristle with potential, he says. And we should honor unskilled laborers who will probably stay poor. In the gospel, God honors every son and daughter who believes in him. The church is a family, not a club. And favoritism has no place in a family. When we love and receive all kinds of people, it shows that God's ways are becoming our ways, for God loves the poor. We emulate God's character and obey His will when we refuse to play favorites. When we play favorites and make distinctions, we mistreat the poor. And here's the third, final thing I'll say out of this passage James I think points us to is that when we mistreat or, or when we make distinctions we misread the rich. James looks at these who are who are there living in these places and he says why do you pay so much special attention to these who are wealthy are these not the ones who oppress you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the very name by which you were called? Now, does this mean that, that all wealthy people are, are, are oppressing the poor? Absolutely not. Wealth is a great tool. It's neutral. It has no morality one way or the other. There are some that are godly, Christ followers that are using their wealth for great good. But historically, if you look, those with, with money and popularity and influence have been the very ones who have blasphemed the name of Christ and who have sought to oppress and manipulate those who follow him James is not saying that we should be unkind to the wealthy I don't want you to hear that but he is saying that we should not give undue deference to them at the expense of the poor Church when, when we come together we we live in a place that's kind of smack dab in the middle of Greenville and Spartanburg We're still fairly rural. There's lots of farmland still around us. But I think in the days to come, with Bass Pro Shops coming in down the road, I think there's going to be neighborhoods that are going to pop up around us. I think we're going to have to be ready for people that are not like us to come. And I don't know about you, but I think that's good news. I welcome that. I I, I think we've got to be at the place where we say, none of us deserve to be here. Therefore, we've got to be ready to to reach out to those that don't deserve to be here either, but welcome them as brothers and sisters the way James does. Let me ask you just a few questions coming out of this, and I don't want any answers, obviously, but, but I want you to hear these questions, and I want you just to let them linger, let them float. I know this has been a pretty serious sermon today, but... I want you to just let these float out there to you. If Jesus showed up, I asked you this question at the beginning, if Jesus showed up today, where would we seat him? See, the reality is the Bible teaches that there are no good seats. There are not to be any good seats in our gathering. There's really only one glory seat, and it's to be occupied by Christ. I love what we sang this morning. I love... I love the emphasis put there. We as believers should not come into this place jockeying for position. We should come into this place ready to lay our lives down in service of the King. The second question I'll ask you this morning is Well, where should you sit? If there are no good seats in this place, where should you sit? This doesn't mean that uh, as, we, as we think about this, as I joke about all, in a Baptist church all the good seats being the ones in the back, this doesn't mean that we should flock to the front, nor does it mean that we should flock to the sides, nor does it mean that we should just not sit down at all so that we can give space to those who will come in. But I think what's wrapped up here and what I want you to hear in this question is what's stated for us in Philippians chapter 2, right before that passage I read earlier, Paul there says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from conceit. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I think the seat that you and I should take would be the one that, that gladly participates, that comes ready to lay down our lives in service to the King, that enjoys what, we, what, what, what God is doing here, that enjoys God. But we do so from a perspective of, I want to serve my brothers. I want to serve my sisters. I want to see their needs and meet their needs before I seek to meet my own. The third and final question I'll ask you this morning is this. Are there any, and this is, I, want, I want this just to weigh on you, are there any people, are there any groups, are there any races that we as a church are either intentionally or unintentionally shunning? the flip side of that question is, are there any people, groups, or races that we are preferring? I'm not saying there are. I'm not saying there's not. But I want us to think through this so that we would be a church that is healthy and holy to the glory of God. God is seeing fit to put this issue into His Word, therefore we need it. Maybe, maybe it's not as a church so much that we're intentionally or unintentionally shunning or preferring certain groups or people or races. But maybe you're doing it individually. Maybe you have a certain prejudice. Racism is sinful. Making distinctions is sinful. Let me just close by saying this. When it comes to people, we're going to come from different sides of the track. We're going to come from all different walks of life. We're going to all be different. But here are some things that are true of all of us. All are made in the image of God. Every one of us. Every single person. My heart breaks today for Shane and Kayla. As Kayla miscarried last night. That baby that was in her womb made in the image of God. That elderly person that is right now suffering through Alzheimer's and it's progressively growing worse and worse, made in the image of God. That person with Down syndrome, made in the image of God. We are all made in the image of God. Second thing is true of all of us, we are all, because of sin, fallen. Every one of us is undeserving. Every one of us... We don't deserve to be here. We don't deserve to know what we know. We don't deserve to be able to call God our Father. We don't deserve to be able to call one another brother and sister. We don't deserve to have the Word of God have James written from all these years back, call us brothers and sisters. We don't deserve that. What we deserve is we deserve hell, all of us, every single person that's in this room, every single person that we will encounter deserving of hell. Third thing that is true of us is that all, all of us that are in this room that are saved, all that will ever be saved, are saved by grace. Nothing that we have done. We bring nothing to the table. We bring no gold rings to the table that earn us a better seat. It's all by God's grace. Driscoll, Mark Driscoll, as he preached through this passage, made this statement in the middle of the sermon. I think he just ran right by it, but I think it's pretty important. In God's family, even though the father doesn't have favorites, his kids often do. Don't let your preferences become your prejudices. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this is a heavy, very serious, very somber topic this morning. Didn't intend for it to be that way, but God, in some ways this hits harder than we really care to admit. God, I pray that you, the reason that you've seen fit to have this in the Bible and for us to look at it this morning, God, I pray that you would achieve that purpose. God, that you'd might make us a, a church that makes no distinctions among ourselves. That We come into this place and we are well aware that the ground at the foot of the cross is completely level for all who would kneel in its blood-spattered dust. God, I pray that that would ring true in the way that we fellowship with one another and the way that we speak to one another and the way that we linger with one another. And God, that it would ring true as we leave this place and we are with co-workers, that we're with neighbors. God, that we wouldn't back up from declaring Sin to be sin, where you've declared it to be sin. But God, that where you've not, God, that we wouldn't draw lines. Lord, would you do a work in our hearts personally and do a work in us as a faith family, Lord. I pray, God, that you would make us more and more diverse. God, that as long as you linger before coming again, God, that we might increasingly become a church that looks more and more and more like heaven, where there will be people dr- gathered from every nation and tribe and tongue. Lord, make us diverse for your own glory, for your own namesake. Let us rally around the fact that you made no distinctions, that you showed no partiality, and you chose to love us regardless regardless of our shabby rags. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you an opportunity tonight, today as we close just to think about what's been said, maybe to process this. Maybe there's some things that have hit home for you personally. Um, I want you to know that there is forgiveness. There's there There is healing to come away from this. You say, This kind of thing's all I've ever known. I don't know how to not draw distinctions. By the grace of God, the promise is he's making you like his son. And if his son draws no distinctions, then you can find the grace that will empower you to get away from this issue of making distinctions, whether they be economic and social, race-related, whatever they may be. You may be here today, and and you say, well, I'm not a believer. I'm I'm not a follower of Christ. But I think I want to follow a God who's like that. If today you're here, and you know that your sin separates you from God, and you know you need to be forgiven, I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to, to talk with you and help you to turn from your sin and to trust Christ. Today, you may be here, and there may be something that's between you and another brother, another sister. And maybe, this is not me trying to manipulate this and and talk you into this, but maybe there's somebody here that you need to go to. I want to give you permission to just go across this room and, and get a brother or sister and deal with what's there. We should not be separated, there's no place for favoritism or lines of distinction. Maybe you're here today and you just need someone to pray with you. There's going to be some people that will be out in this room right on the other side of that wall. and They're there to pray with you. They're not, not there to counsel you. They're just there to pray. They're just brothers and sisters who love the Lord, who would just be willing to hear you and to lock hands with you and to pray with you. Whatever it is that God is calling you to today, I'm going to ask you to, to, to just be obedient. Maybe all it is that you need to do is to stay right where you are and to pray. Maybe you just need to join in and sing as Ethan leads us to sing, thanking God for the grace you've received. Whatever it is, whatever it is, say yes and follow the Lord. Let's respond in obedience as we worship Him. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.